This is Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Mark Kansian is a retired colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps and a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, focusing on international security. Scott Kennedy is an author and expert on Chinese business and economics, who's also at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And Yiching Xu is a professor at Stanford University, working on political methodology and comparative politics with a focus on China. We spoke with all of them about what's happening right now in Ukraine, how it's reverberating around the world, what big decisions and shifts are happening among countries, their leaders, among big blocs such as NATO and the EU, and how this impacts Russia's relations with its own neighbors, including China. Like all of our episodes, these are edited portions of much longer conversations that were recorded live with audience questions. For information on how to join us and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever podcast streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Friday with Wajahat Ali of The Daily Beast. Before we get into our conversation with Professor Shu and Scott Kennedy, let's go first to our conversation with Mark Kansian about his view of what's happening in the Ukraine as a retired colonel in the Marine Corps and as a student of international politics. This conversation happened last Friday. Things have evolved since then, but it's still all very relevant. Without further ado, let's roll the tape. We're listening to the estimates of casualties from Ukraine and also from Western-aligned countries and wondering if we can take the numbers at face value. Uh, Ukraine have made claims about how many Russians have died in the attack. And the UK government today said that they believe that 450 Russian soldiers were killed in the first day of the, uh, the you know, the new escalation in the war. And uh, that would be more than the total amount of UK citizens who died during Iraq. So do we think that these numbers are accurate or do we have any idea about how many Russians and Ukrainians have really died so far in this phase of the war? Uh, no and no. <laughs> um, you know, <clears throat> these news reports are, uh, you know, very speculative. I don't think there's any way for the Ukrainians to know how many casualties they've inflicted. Um, you know, uh, so I would not put much stake in those kinds of reports. You know, the numbers of casualties they've inflicted, the number of uh, armored vehicles they've destroyed. Now, there are some things that... I take a little more credibly, uh, you know, when the Ukrainians say that they've lost control of a, a particular city, um, then I am inclined to uh, listen. You know, when they say that there are Russian tanks on the outskirts of Kiev, you know, I'm inclined to uh, believe that. Although even then, you know, you have to wait and sort of understand, you know, to figure out you know, what exactly does that mean? You may remember that yesterday there was a lot of back and forth about um, Russian uh, air mobile troops on uh, the airport, the Antonov airport, you know, the first report was that the Russians had taken it. Then the Ukrainians said they had taken it back. It looks like, in fact, that Ukrainians had not taken it back. Um, it looks like the Russians still uh, control the airport. So, you know, all of these reports are, you know, uh, uh, you know, need uh, verification. With your military expertise, your career in the military, how do you evaluate the initial Ukrainian military response and not only their effectiveness of their response, but the will of the people to fight? There are a couple of questions in there. The first one is that the thing I look at most is where the front lines are. Uh, 
you know, there's certainly still some uncertainty there, but that gives a little sense about, uh, you know, how the, what the balance of fighting is. Uh, and, you know, right now that doesn't look very good uh, for the Ukrainians. Uh, in terms of the, the will of the U- uh, Ukrainian people, I mean, it's, it's looked pretty good. Uh, the, you know, you've, there are all these videos of, you know, the militias uh, handing out um, rifles and, you know, um, citizens vowing to, you know, use Molotov talk cocktails and uh, fight to the death. Um, those kinds of expressions for conventional war, uh, I think, don't really carry much weight. Uh, you know, um, citizen militias against tanks are really not very effective. If there were an insurgency and we can come back to that, you know, then that might be more important because then, you know, individual citizens might have more impact. So, Mark, uh, you know, we've been talking about the blind spots in this stage of the conflict, They're trying to get a handle on which pieces of territory uh, are controlled by Ukraine or Russia. Are there specific regions of the country that you think that we've got a pretty good handle on what's going on? But are there others where there's really a much more foggy picture? Well, let me do a quick tour of the, the country here and, and sort of lay out where I think um, – you know, the fighting is and the, the status of uh, operations, you know, starting in the north, you know, the uh, Russians, of course, have struck uh, out of Belarus towards uh, Kiev. They seem to have, uh, you know, made good progress. You know, it's about 80 or 90 miles to the border. And, you know, the Russians seem to be on the outskirts of Kiev, which uh, would indicate that they've made, you know, I think pretty good progress. Uh, they also control an airfield, which will be uh, very helpful. So, and that's you know the most dangerous thrust because, of course, it's aimed at the capital. And if the Russians were to capture the capital, uh, you know, it, it, that doesn't mean that resistance would have to end, but it would make it you know that much more difficult. One thing we learned in Afghanistan is you know once the capital falls and the uh, government uh, flees, uh, you know, the rest of the country will often uh, collapse after that. Uh, one of the worrying things about Kiev is that when you look at the the pictures. It doesn't appear that the uh, Ukrainians have made any preparations to fortify the city. There, there are no um, barricades across streets. Uh, you know, there are no uh, bridges dropped. There is one bridge that's been dropped, but you know, there aren't dozens of bridges and you know the overpasses and the kinds of approaches that you would have to. Um, demolished to really make it hard for the Russians to get into the city. So that leads one to believe that you know that they um, that the city is maybe not terribly well defended. Um, and to come back to that thought, the Ukrainians declared mobilization like two days ago, you know, which was two months too late. Uh, you know, it takes weeks to get reservists you know ready to fight, uh, and those are even. With organized reserve units, and if you're talking about you know people's militias, you know you take months. There's a reason that uh, service members go through basic training and then uh, follow-on training. So that's Kiev. Looking you know around to the northeast, uh, there's a strike on Kharkiv. Um, last I saw, they had not taken uh, Kharkiv, but they had taken some of the other uh, cities around there. That's in the northeast. The thing that's disturbing a but that that's worrisome is that that may be a thrust that's trying to get behind the Ukrainian forces that are in the Donbass that are holding the line against the uh, breakaway regions, the two uh, provinces that have broken away. So uh, 
you know, if that um, axis, uh, that thrust uh, makes more progress, the Ukrainians could be uh, cut off. And then going down to the south, apparently there's a, been an amphibious landing down the, near Melitopol, uh, which is off the Sea of Azov. And details are sketchy. So, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure how much emphasis to put on that. More disturbing is down by Crimea. It looks like those forces broke out and have um, taken Kherson, which is on the uh, Dnipro River, uh, and maybe moving, you know, towards Odessa and across uh, the river there. Uh, uh, so, you know, looking around the periphery, it looks like the Russians are making uh, pretty good progress. I think the two places that are most worrisome, one is Kiev, of course, if the capital falls, but then also if those Ukrainian forces in the east face uh, encirclement, you know, they, they'll try to uh, break away and move to the west, get across the Dnipro River. And trying to do that under pressure is very difficult. You know, the discipline would probably break down and the units might collapse. So looking then at the map of the country, we can see quite clearly that Russia has designs on Kiev, of course. They have designs on the eastern part of the country near Kharkiv and the Donbass. And we can see on the Black Sea coast. Do we, as far as we know, believe that Russia have any designs on western Ukraine, especially the area around Lviv? That's a great question. And uh, right now, no, because the efforts seem to be concentrated in the east. But that doesn't mean that uh, these forces would not move to the west, particularly if, you know, they Ukrainian position in the east collapsed. Um, there's been a lot of speculation that the Ukrainians might be able to hold on along the Dnipro uh, river line. Uh, and if it is a very uh, strong river line, but Ukrainians you know, have, have not been able to hold a line so far, and they might not be able to hold that river, river line either. So, Mark, this is maybe less of a military tactical question, more of a morale question. President Zelensky has shown that he's very brave, right? President Zelensky, earlier today, there was Russian propaganda that he had fleed the country, and then he was filmed with his cabinet outside in the streets just to refute those claims. But should he be in Kyiv when the defense preparation has been inadequate? Maybe they're running out of arms. Uh, should he be maybe thinking about going to Lviv? And what kind of calculations are at play here with a potential for Zelensky to run into some serious harm? Well, first, I mean, he has shown uh, great courage and, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for that. There were a lot of questions, you know, when he first uh, won the presidency about whether he was really up to it. You know, he didn't have much of a um, previous record. Um, but the problem is that you know, if if he left the capital, the government and the military would likely collapse. You know, that's what, what happened in Afghanistan. And, you know, even though, yes, the president was corrupt, um, it happened in South Vietnam. And, um, uh, and it doesn't look like the Ukrainians have sort of made the kind of preparations you would need to make uh, if you really were going to move the government and operate from, a you know, another um, uh, city. So, you know, if I were advising them, I'd say, you know, stay in the capital as long as you possibly can. Now, you know, now maybe, you know, quite quietly, they're making some arrangements to get him out. But, um, you know, there's a high likelihood that if, if he were to leave, then that would be uh, the end. What would be different with the U.S. funding, supplying, supporting Ukrainians fighting to take back their country against the Russians than the U.S. supporting the fighters in Afghanistan during that 
Russian invasion? In theory, it would be very similar, and we would probably be giving them very similar kinds of uh, aid, you know, stingers, training, that sort of thing. The big difference is that they are. Th- this would be occurring on the border of NATO, and not you know whatever six thousand eight thousand miles away, um, where the aid was channeled through Pakistan and uh, other countries. So uh, uh, it's the proximity that would uh, make this difference. If that's why, if there was a buffer state in the um, in the west uh, of Ukraine, you know that would make the you know. Uh, supporting an insurgency you know, much easier. Before we get into kind of the global diplomatic picture, I just want to ask, do we think that there is any possible chance of mediation before things continue escalating any further? Well, it looks like Zelensky and the government have put out some feelers. You know, Zelensky made a statement that he was willing to meet um, the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, made a similar statement. Um, I think that they suggested that maybe a neutral Ukraine would uh, um, be a possibility. Uh, uh, you know, a week ago that was considered unacceptable, but you know, given where we are today, uh, maybe that's um, an acceptable outcome. But the, the Russians don't seem to be interested. You know, Putin batted it away. So uh, I think you know. So right right now, that doesn't look very encouraging. You know, maybe if NATO and the United States got behind something like that, uh, you know, there might be a possibility of a of a settlement. But, you know, that would be a huge step back for the U.S. and NATO to say, OK, we're stepping back from where we were a week ago, where we said that Ukraine was, you know, sovereign and independent and could uh, uh, do what it wanted for um, military alliances. And now we're saying, no, we're going to impose this um, neutrality and we're going to pull NATO um, support out uh, as part of that uh, neutrality. So, you know, it's it's not impossible, but it doesn't look encouraging. It is hard sometimes to take the uh, Russia's demands or claims of what they're after entirely at face value. It seems to me as though a lot of their claims about NATO have been pretextual. And as we saw in the speech that Putin gave before declaring the new invasion, it seemed as though perhaps he has other goals than those that they officially offer to the West. It seems to me that one possibility, and there's been some analysis to this extent, is that Russia are planning to, as you said as well, decapitate the government in Kiev and install a kind of Russian puppet state, possibly also with um, the current Ukrainian regime carrying on in the Western part of the country in an arrangement like North and South Korea, West Germany and the DDR, or even China and the Republic of China. Uh, in the event that something like this happens, uh, do you think that any European countries would recognize the government in Kiev installed by Russia as a legitimate state? It's hard for me to believe that they would. You know, if you go back to the Cold War, the United States never recognized uh, Soviet occupation of the Baltic countries, for example. So it um, you know, my guess is that you know, following that kind of precedent, the United States and NATO would not recognize a puppet government in uh, Kiev. The Chinese probably would, and you know, North Koreans, and you know, a couple of the outcast countries like that. But uh, for the short term, you know, the Russians would be there and would be in control. Uh, and then, you know, they might might not really care that much about you know how many embassies they were uh, able to open. 
Now, much of Europe is uniting behind Ukraine, as we've indicated, to help in its defense against Russia. Even countries with long histories of neutrality, Switzerland and Sweden, for example, are joining the effort to punish Russia. Even Switzerland, which has remained neutral since Napoleon, stayed neutral during both world wars, uh, joining this larger effort. Now, basically all of European airspace is closed to Russian aircraft, sanctions coming from all European countries. Uh, targets on individual leaders in Russia. And it's notable that this comes after years in which it seemed like European unity was fraying after Brexit. You know, some people are saying now that in a few days, Vladimir Putin has done more to strengthen the unity of Europe than what politicians in Europe have done for years and years. And another kind of diplomatic consequence of the current events involves uh, other countries inside of Europe and how they approach and think about NATO. We know that for decades, Finland, Sweden, Ireland have uh, had intermittent discussions about maybe joining NATO. But we saw today that a spokesperson from the Russian defense ministry directly threatened Sweden and Finland in a speech. And we've seen some members of parliament in Finland and Sweden speak more strongly in favor of NATO membership. Do you see um, a rising support for NATO membership among these kinds of countries? And do you think that accession into NATO is suddenly becoming much more plausible, even in the near term? For Sweden and Finland, I think the answer is yes. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that they will join NATO, but there's no question that these events have made them nervous and made them more open to talking about NATO. Um, uh, not Ireland. I Ireland has, I don't think, uh, expressed any uh, interest in joining NATO. It's interesting that Finland and Sweden already have very close relationships with NATO. In fact, the the Swedes are, you know, almost uh, um, have almost all the privileges um, of being a NATO member, except for the Article Five coverage you know they they attend nato meetings they go to they send forces to nato exercises they um, uh, participate in nato peacekeeping um uh you know they they're deeply deeply involved and the finns also not quite as much uh both countries have tended to use nato membership as a way to balance russia so when russia starts getting antagonistic they start talking more about nato and then when russia backs off and they talk maybe a little less about it. You know, um, there's been talk in both of them. I think it's closer in Sweden, the, the you know, public uh, opinion for uh, joining NATO. Some of the country, some of the parties have uh, pledged to join NATO. But I, I think in both countries is still, you know, the, the popular opinion is still pref um, preferring to stay uh, neutral, but, you know, with these very, very close relationships to NATO. And I don't think that's going to change. I think uh, in terms of a formal membership, uh, but you may see these connections, you know, get even stronger. It is um, interesting because if indeed Russia is genuinely motivated by this fear of NATO expansion, they're doing exactly the opposite of what they might be doing to prevent further NATO expansion. They're encouraging these countries into NATO. And just my last question for you is, since we're talking about NATO, um, the, with the current bloc in mind, how impressed or unimpressed are you with the level of consensus an alignment inside of the NATO bloc today, looking at countries like Italy and Germany that have been particularly criticized for uh, taking a, a less, um, uh, you know, strong posture against Moscow. Um, how do you kind of evaluate the current state of the bloc and the way that they've approached this crisis? 
there have been some positive uh, elements and some worrisome elements. You know, the positive one is that diplomatically, the Biden administration seems to have gotten everyone, you know, to sign up to, um, you know, statements of opposition. And, you know, many NATO countries have been, um, you know, very um, emphatic about their opposition to what uh, Russia is doing. Several of them have sent uh, equipment to the Ukrainians uh, and then sent troops to Eastern Europe to um, reassure our allies there. Uh, so that's, you know, that's very positive. Uh, the worrisome things are, as you point out, Germany and Italy, particularly Germany. Uh, you know, Germany, it's, it's the largest economy in Europe. Their uh, head of their army just uh, came out publicly bemoaning the fact that the army was in uh, terrible shape and really could not effectively conduct military operations, uh, which is not a surprise to anybody who's been watching the German military. The German military is really a mobilization military. In other words, it's not ready to fight tonight. It's, you know, it will take six months or a year to get ready to, um, for um, you know, a substantial military operations. The other thing that's worrisome about Germany is their need for Russian gas, and everybody is you know, I think uh, uh, knowledgeable about that. You know, the Nord Stream Two has been, you know, a central uh, concern here. And the Germans, to their credit, you know, have paused the certification of the pipeline. But long term, they 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 have to have that Russian gas, and they're going to have to have uh, uh, Nord Stream Two operational because they just shut down their last nuclear power plant. They're shutting down all of their coal uh, by I think 2030. So if they want to have heat in the winter and electricity uh, in their houses, they've got to have uh, that, that Russian energy. So long term, I think, you know, Putin's figuring that, you know, the Germans will figure out some way to get that uh, pipeline going. So we are going to go to Andy for the next audience question. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, John. Many thanks for joining us today, Mark. Really great to hear from you. I wonder if we could get you to look into the future and perhaps into the mind of Putin, which both obviously proving to be very difficult to predict, and perhaps give us a few of your thoughts on where we go from here, where Putin goes from here. Let's, for instance, assume that the Ukraine falls, obviously a terrible scenario, but may it happen. Do you think, kind of looking five, ten years into the future, do you think that, let's take Estonia, for example, Estonia, member of NATO, does that mean as far as Putin is concerned, Russian troops can never set foot on Estonian soil? Or do you think that there is, despite what Article 5 says on paper, that there might be scope for hybrid warfare, grey zone warfare, you know, like small, small escalations beneath the threshold of trigger response? Do you think that Putin really is doing a last grab before the rest of Europe subscribes to NATO? Or do you think that actually his plans are bigger and grander, and that he truly does have designs on a hugely enlarged Russian sphere of influence in Eastern Europe? Sure. I think there are sort of two questions in what you asked. I mean, the first one is, what are Putin's long-term goals? And I think he's been quite clear that he intends to reestablish uh, the old Soviet Union and the old Russian Empire to the extent he can. He's argued that Ukraine was an integral part of Russia and illegitimately uh, broke away. So if I were in Estonia, that would make me very nervous and the Baltic countries, but also other neighbors as well. Uh, as you noted, you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are all 
members of NATO. That makes it a very different situation from Ukraine. If the Russians were to cross the border there, you know, that would trigger an Article 5. Now, Article 5 technically says that the members will consult, but that has taken to mean that they will react militarily. And to be fair to NATO, they have been preparing for that. People have noticed since 2014, particularly just how exposed and vulnerable the Baltic countries are. Rand did a great study a couple of years ago where they war-gamed the Baltic countries, a, a Russian incursion, and the conclusion was that the Russians would be in the capitals in 72 hours. Since then, NATO has established uh, battle groups in each one of these countries. The forces rotate from different NATO countries. We've been building up their militaries. You know, they've instituted conscription. So they've done a lot of things to, to make themselves tougher. They're still very exposed, but at least NATO is moving in the right direction. You raised the question about gray zone conflict. And of course, you know, gray zone would not trigger Article 5, at least on the most circumstances. And I think those countries are vulnerable to gray zone. But again, uh, NATO and the countries have been you know, working on you know, cyber protection, on maintaining good relations with all of their ethnic groups in order to mitigate any gray zone assaults. So the Baltic countries are very nervous. They're very vulnerable. But NATO has been taking some sensible actions. And, and I would not be at all surprised to see that those increased after you know, this experience with Ukraine. Mark, I have to thank you for kind of bringing us down to reality, at least myself. I always viewed NATO as unbreakable. But I did want to ask you, what are the last thoughts that you want to leave this room with? There's been over 2,000 people that have joined us today. It could be about the conflict. It could be about the future of NATO. It could be about anything. And it could be positive, negative, or somewhere in between. If this plays out as we think, that is, that the Russians do take over at least the eastern part of Ukraine, if not the whole part, this is going to have a profound effect on NATO and the Europeans, you know, really shattering their illusions about Russia and the post-Cold War security environment. I think you'll see them spending more on defense. The United States, I think, is going to have a big bump up in its defense budget. It's not going to be, they're not going to take their preparations back to the level of the Cold War, but I think you'll see a real change in attitude there. And the second thing to watch is this question about insurgency and what happens in Ukraine. You know, does it become a failed state? How that plays out with thousands of casualties, you know, that would, again, color the discussion about NATO very uh, profoundly. So how that plays out is going to change the way Europeans, the United States, you know, regards uh, security in Europe. That's all we have from our conversation with Mark Kansian. Again, if you like what you hear, please visit our website, pm101.live, for past episodes and information on how to join us live. But next, let's go to a conversation we have with Scott Kennedy, who's an author and expert on Chinese business and economics, as well as Professor Yiching Xu of Stanford University, who studies political methodology and comparative politics with a focus on China. We spoke with them about how what's happening in Ukraine is reverberating through Russian-Chinese relations and lots of other topics. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. From your discussions with people in China, what is the populace's perception of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the Chinese government's response? 
I would just say at the outset, we don't have a clear, unfettered view into Chinese public opinion on this. Uh, you do have a couple signals. There were some Chinese professors who issued a joint letter very recently criticizing China's support of Russia on Ukraine and calling on the Chinese to change their policies to come in line with China's basic foreign policy principles of protection of sovereignty and respect for territorial integrity. At the same time, you see China's social media, Weibo, with lots of pro-Russian Putin talk and language. And in fact, Chinese public opinion, if you judged by what's being allowed on social media, is more pro-Putin than Russian public opinion, because you know there's a bunch of protests uh, in different cities in Russia. But it's really hard to say. My guess is that there's a silent group of folks in China who are really concerned that China has thrown its lot in with an illiberal regime that's on the down, that is going to lose this contest, not necessarily in the short term with Ukraine, but the broader contest with Europe and the United States, and that China, having abandoned its strategy of hide and bide and sort of keep its cards close to its vest and maintain good relations with the West as much as they can, that China has sided with the wrong folks this time and that this could have really long-term strategic downside consequences for China. Again, it's very hard to see on social media right now, but I imagine there is a very vigorous private conversation going on amongst Chinese as well as within Chinese officialdom about what to do. I want to ask uh, Yi Ching if you want to chime in. And do you agree kind of with Scott's assessment of what the Chinese public might be thinking as they react to this war? I'm a Weibo user, um, daily user, as many of you are heavy Twitter users. This is my maybe second or third account, you know, to what's going on when you, you, your account gets banned by the state. But I do observe very interestingly, fairly vibrant discussion on this issue on Weibo. Given the fact that a lot of liberal-minded people are already not speaking, because either because their accounts are banned or because they dare not to speak, I think that the fact that the opinions are diverse, although tilted toward pro-Russia, I fully agree with what Scott has said, is because the state is not fully clear on their stance right now. There's a group of discussion that are tilted towards Russia's current policy or sympathetic to, to the Russian side, they're what people call them the big game party or big chess game party in Chinese. Basically, their, their main argument is a, like a real politic argument, uh, offensive realism, so to speak, that the NATO expansion threatens Russia's security type of things. But there are a lot of people talking about those following this line of logic, but there are also... Uh, other people talking about like more sympathetic to the suffering of Ukraine's ordinary Ukraine people is more on the humanitarian side. Uh, they a lot of videos are shown, and they're actually not censored. The humanitarian crisis happening in Ukraine. So I see both sides, but I don't know. There's no scientific way to. Well, there may be some way to do research, but Weibo data, as you know, is not representative of anything right now, given the selection of users and given the censorship. I want to get into the aspect that will have the most direct consequences on China, and that's the newly announced Russian sanctions and how Russia's economy and economic relationships will evolve as a consequence. So in the last 24 hours, the G7 have announced action against Russia's central bank. 
which is extraordinary. I don't think there's any precedent for sanctions on a central bank for an economy of the size of Russia. It seems like the economic measures that the West are willing to consider and implement against Russia are almost as strict and extreme as the ones that they implemented on Iran. We know that Russia and China have this much scrutinized economic relationship. And certainly there will be reverberations inside the Chinese economy as a consequence of this enormous economic shift. I want to hear from Scott, how will these new measures affect China's economy? Well, in the short term, as long as these sanctions stay focused on Russia, there's not going to be a huge direct effect on China's economy. But if the U.S. and others require China to abide by these sanctions, then China will face a huge choice. Will it backstop Russia's economy? And if it does so, will it be then the target of secondary sanctions by the U.S. and others? So this is really a huge gamble. And we should recognize that if you just sort of look at China's overall economic relationship, its ties with Europe, the U.S., Japan, and others are far, far larger than their ties with Russia. The U.S. and China trade about $650 billion a year, $800-plus billion in China-EU trades, $160-some billion between China and Japan last year. By contrast, China and Russia traded about a little under $150 billion last year, mostly energy, but also consumer goods. So if China is going to lean toward Russia and help them, it is going to be in spite of their economic self-interest. It's important for China to get energy, oil, natural gas from Russia. But nevertheless, the possibility of facing larger sanctions from the U.S. and others is, is pretty high and would be more devastating. The U.S. has told the Chinese about potential sanctions that could be imposed. At the beginning, they'd be relatively narrow and wouldn't have a huge effect on China's economy. But I can imagine if this drags on for a longer time and the U.S. and others are likely to expand the range of potential sanctions that others abetting uh, Russian aggression would face. I think the biggest challenges for the Chinese aren't on the trade side, although they would be significant. They're on the financial side because the sanctions that the West are announcing, as you just mentioned, get to the activities of, of financial institutions around the world. And Chinese banks primarily operate internationally in dollars, and they used SWIFT. And if they participate in helping Russia avoid the most dangerous parts of these sanctions, they will be sanctioned themselves. And that could be devastating for China's economy. China does have its own international payment system, SIPS, that it created in 2015 to help facilitate trade in renminbi in China's own currency. And there are about 1,100 banks signed up for that system. But it's still far, far smaller than SWIFT, which has about 11,000 banks. And only about 20% of Chinese-Russian trade actually occurs in renminbi. Most of it is in euros or dollars. So China is in a very, very difficult position realpolitik aligning itself with Russia against the West, but its economic interests clearly lie in the other direction, and it could be quite vulnerable the further this drags on. So quickly following up there, Scott, what would be the calculation 
for the CCP government to help Russia out and to risk these sanctions? I think their view is Russia will win quickly. The U.S. and others will threaten sanctions, but because of their own self-interest, they will keep these sanctions relatively narrow and that they won't drag China into this again because they also have large bilateral economic relationships with China. So China is hoping that the U.S. and Europe and others are paper tigers, that they talk loudly, but when it comes to really imposing costs on others, they won't do so. And that China could live with the opprobrium, you know, with the criticism in the media and stuff, but they are expecting that on the economic side, things wouldn't go very far. And on that, they may be wrong. So, Scott, you mentioned how banning many of these Russian banks from SWIFT is encouraging Russia to look at uh, the Chinese currency transactions, the RMB transactions that you mentioned. And presumably one of the reasons that the West have been so reluctant to take these sorts of steps in the past is that they are perhaps encouraging huge parts of the global economy to conduct transactions completely outside of the U.S. dollar. So are you concerned that this kind of step is going to accelerate the end of the hegemony of the U.S. dollar in the global economy? Yes, I am worried about that. It's right for the U.S. and others to be concerned about Chinese state capitalism, about China's violation of its international commitments on trade, finance, in a whole variety of areas, engagement in economic coercion, and placing penalties on China as as appropriate. But one of the great strengths that the U.S. has is its structural power of having everybody participate in the global economy inside our system. We often describe the U.S. and China as competitors uh, racing against each other. And there's this question, you know, do you slow the Chinese down or do you try to speed up? But in fact, in addition to being two competitors on a track or on a basketball court, most of our competition occurs inside stadiums that we built. And the rules were set up by us as well. And the Chinese have accepted grudgingly a lot of those. We want the Chinese and everyone else to do financial transactions in U.S. dollars through SWIFT. And so if we turn these public goods for the global economy into tools of sanctions, it is obviously going to encourage them and others who could be targets to look for alternative institutions and means. In the short term, I think what I've tried to say is that the Chinese are not ready for prime time, that SIPs, their interbank payment system, is not ready, and China's currency is not fully convertible. But if you look longer term, what we are doing is incentivizing the Chinese and others to go elsewhere. And it's the same with sanctions, for example, on semiconductors. Yes, in the short term, we are putting it to the Chinese with sanctions on Huawei and others, not allowing them to access certain kinds of chips or chip equipment. But over the longer term, we are highly incentivizing them to create alternative technology ecosystems. And so we have this short-term benefit that we gain from doing this. And, you know, when you're in the midst of a war, you really have no other choice. But longer term, our goal should be to figure out how we keep others inside our architecture as opposed to creating alternative architectures. So in this future, potentially bifurcated world where you have the SWIFT and the SIPs, assuming that that increases in technological capacity, 
Do you envision a world where you could have it basically divided between democracies and authoritarian or totalitarian regimes based on which system they use? We definitely are headed down a path which could see a greater divergence in the, in the global economy with much less direct connectivity between China and the United States and between China and some other Western countries. That said, I think the likelihood of it being a very neat division of autocracies versus democracies is pretty low. We're more likely to see just greater fragmentation across issue areas. So depending on the topic and the issue area, sort of different levels of alignment and connectivity. So yes, the U.S. has gained support from Europe and Japan and others about Russia and, and disagreeing with China on that. On the other hand, you know, ASEAN, the Southeast Asian countries, trade a lot more with China than the United States. In fact, in much of the world, China is country's number one trading partners. So it's going to be very difficult to really wean away much of the world from trading with China. On issues of data, this is a huge emphasis of the United States, and it will be part of the Indo-Pacific economic framework that the Biden administration is rolling out. The U.S. really wants to create rules on data which align with the values of democracies. At the same time, the U.S. and EU have very different views about data and privacy. And there are various views throughout Asia as, as well. So I think we are going to see some new systems and agreements, but we are not going to see a neat world, one side painted red, the other side painted blue or green, pick your favorite color. Instead, we're going to see this mishmash because global economic interdependence has progressed so far. We're just not going it, to... It's possible, and the more the Chinese push in this direction, clearly aligning themselves with Russia, we may see this sorting out that way. But I think the more likely way we're going to get to is a more fragmented world where, with variation in alignments based on individual issues. The Chinese have publicly come out in support of uh, Russia, uh, saying that uh, Russia has legitimate and uh, what it described as reasonable security concerns that need to be addressed. Uh, those comments had come uh, right around the time when President Xi and President Putin had professed the closeness of their relationship, saying that their friendship uh, between the two countries really has no limits. And that came just a couple of weeks ago um, at the start of the Winter Olympics. Uh, the two, of course, have shared interests in trying to push back against American influence. At the same time, uh, China has indicated that it is not on board with the idea of a Russian invasion. So a military conflict would really run counter to China's long-standing foreign policy principles of non-interference and also of state sovereignty. So, Scott, you talked about just now about how the salient issues aren't necessarily about democracy. And we can look at some of the priorities that China have always professed in the way that they approach international relations. For one thing, China have always been against international interstate conflicts and have always spoken out against those kinds of conflicts. Another thing is that China have always prioritized territorial integrity and the inviolability of international borders which is, of course, very relevant for Xinjiang, for Tibet, for Hong Kong, for Taiwan. There was a report in the New York Times by Edward Wong, who described in the last couple months 
the enormous outreach from the Biden administration to Chinese diplomats to try to advocate against the Russian attack on Ukraine on these terms, on the terms that matter to China, according to China's long understood priorities, that they showed intelligence to China to try to explain how Russia were planning this attack, hoping that China could go to Putin, could go to Moscow and urge them to stop. But they were rebuffed repeatedly by the Chinese diplomats and that the Chinese diplomats rejected these arguments and again returned to some of their own grievances against the United States in these kinds of discussions. So are we at the point now where antagonism against the West and especially against the United States is actually a more important priority for China diplomatically than any of these other things that they've always professed to care about? We could be. We could be. Uh, number one important for, for China's leadership is domestic politics. Xi Jinping's hold on power, the upcoming 20th Party Congress later this year. They spent way, way, way more time on domestic political issues than foreign policy, despite the fact that U.S.-China relations are super important and their place in the world is, is very important. And so they look at their relationship with us and with Russians through that domestic uh, political lens, and they have really imbibed their own Kool-Aid on the idea that the East is rising and the West is falling, that they have grown super fast for 40 plus years, that they are everybody's number one trading partner, that they will soon have the world's largest economy, that they've put folks in space, that they have uh, hypersonic weapons, etc., and that the U.S. Is, is struggling mightily. And I think there's a genuine belief amongst a lot of Chinese about that. I think it's terrific that you enunciated uh, the basic underlying components of China's five principles of peaceful coexistence. Those are not Putin's values. And we're seeing that play out right now. And of course, this is the fifth war that uh, Putin has launched uh, previously against Chechnya, Syria, Georgia, and Ukraine, Crimea in 2014. So China's going to have a very difficult time with this balancing act. And I think one of the things that this speaks to, to get back to the topic that we started this with, is about public opinion and just sort of information in China. Chinese leaders don't travel very often. They don't typically speak a foreign language. Uh, they are, in some ways, victims of their own closed system, that they can't get full information on all kinds of issues that they like to. And so having looked at the world through that lens, when the U.S. came to them and showed them the evidence, they were likely to put it aside because it conflicted with the larger narrative of their rise and their conflict with the United States. And I think they have put themselves in their own box and their own difficulties. And it's going to be very difficult for them to escape that. But if they don't, they are going to most likely regret so closely aligning uh, the statement that they issued on February 4th, Putin and Xi Jinping's very long statement, is going to be difficult to square, particularly the longer that Russia faces difficulties in Ukraine and the stronger Western sentiment grows against Russia and the more we see China abetting Russian behavior. We have seen a pretty impressive and robust response, really guided by President Biden. And a lot of analysts think that Putin's initial bet were based on two faulty premises. Number one, the Ukrainian people would not fight back like they are. 
And number two, that the United States and West were not only on this very steep and fast decline, but they were very weak-willed. In response, we've seen united economic sanctions like never before. We've seen Germany, which the U.S. has been pleading for, to increase their NATO spending to over 2% of their GDP will now go to defense. And we've seen countries like Sweden, which has historically had a neutral posture between the West and Russia, just now, it was announced an hour ago, they're sending 5,000 anti-tank weapons, helmets, body armor directly to the freedom fighters, the, the Ukrainian forces. So based on the leadership the United States has played on the global stage and really how everybody has followed President Biden, from your conversations with the CCP folks, the folks in the business community in China, has this changed their perception on American leadership being in extreme decline, or do they still have their same preconceived notions? There probably is some surprise at how unified and strong the West's response has been and to the obstacles Russia is facing in Ukraine and protests at home in Russia. And that may cause some amount of a rethink amongst China's foreign ministry and some of the leadership and even in Chinese public opinion. But I still think we are far from seeing a broader reset in China's strategic thinking about the direction they're going in and the direction the United States and the West are going in. For them, their views about the United States have to do not with what the U.S. does on the global stage in any individual crisis, but about broader trends that they see in the United States. They look at 900,000 plus Americans who have died from COVID. They look at the January 6th uprising and political fragmentation in Washington, the inability to get things done. They look at growing economic inequality. They look at rising instances of racism, anti-Asian American activities, even against Chinese who have been visiting. All of those still are on the table and what Chinese cite. Now, that may be just them, you know, making an argument to make us feel that China is rising and we should be worried about that and make concessions to China and provide greater reassurance to them. But I do think broadly, these are signposts that the Chinese look at. And so in order to really turn things around with China, it's not going to be whether or not we're successful or the West is successful vis-a-vis -vis Russia on the issue over Ukraine, but can the U.S., get infrastructure spending through Congress? Can we end the pandemic effectively? Can we begin to reduce the gap between rich and poor? Can our broader international standing recover amongst others? Although we'd like to say uh, the U.S. has turned the corner, say, in its strategic competition with China, and now the Chinese are reconsidering everything, there's a much longer, broader set of issues that need to be addressed for us to have a more optimistic view about where we are vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. Thank you very much, Scott. I'd, I'd like to just uh, shoot it over to the audience. So we will start with George Shen. George, over to you. When it comes to the issue of Taiwan, how do you think China is going to take the current situation unfolding in Ukraine 
and take that into the you know policy or maybe the kind of the future decision on Taiwan, how that will influence that decision uh, in your view. Thanks, Scott, for being here. Sure. Thanks, George. My basic starting premise is that these are two very different issue sets from the perspective of Beijing, and that what happens in Ukraine is not likely to affect China's interest in unification or the manner in which it's going to try and continue to pursue it. That's my starting point, but it nevertheless could change. And it may change in a direction that makes the Chinese even more hesitant to go forward. You know, you might have thought if Russia successfully invades Ukraine, changes its leadership in a pro-Russian way, Western sanctions aren't very onerous, or Russia is able to get around them and then set its sights on the next territory near its borders, that the lessons for China would be that it could get away with stepping up the pace of its efforts to unify using coercive measures vis-a-vis Taiwan. But I don't think that that's going to be the, the large lesson that's drawn here. First of all, the U.S. has been very careful and clear that Ukraine is not a part of NATO, that it was never going to use military force to intervene directly, even if it's going to be providing weapons and support to Ukraine, whereas the U.S. position on Taiwan is quite different. It's not the diametrically opposite. The U.S. and Taiwan are not official allied countries. The U.S. doesn't have diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but because of the Taiwan Relations Act and the clear position that the U.S. will, in certain, if provoked by China, come to Taiwan's defense, that that has not changed. So I think Beijing sees that U.S. policy towards Ukraine is very different than it is towards Taiwan, and it's not going to use what happens in Ukraine as a measure of U.S. commitment to Taiwan. You've also seen Japan, Australia, even some European countries speak out more about Taiwan. So I do think the Chinese are watching carefully this broader movement. Um, I also think that what the Chinese could draw from this is that if they lean too hard toward Russia, that what you're seeing is a solidification within the United States policy establishment and with its allies, that there needs to be greater support on the issue of Taiwan and greater deterrence to avoid a to give China any thought that use of force would be effective. We may be moving in that direction. I think the U.S. has been, uh, its policies towards Taiwan really haven't changed dramatically in the last decade or two. We still have a one-China principle, still trying to balance deterrence and reassurance on both parties. But that could shift. The U.S. could move in a direction which is about more strategic clarity vis-a-vis Taiwan. We're not there yet. I think as a result of that, bottom line, even though Xi Jinping seems to believe that it's important to address the Taiwan issue sometime while he's in power, I still don't think that this means that the Chinese are going to genuinely set some new deadline or try to conquer Taiwan by force anytime soon. So I actually, although most folks who hang out with me and talk China with me recognize on many issues, I'm a pessimist. On the issue of cross-strait relations, I still think that the 
policies that were adopted 50 years ago in Shanghai, 50 years ago this week with the Shanghai communique, are still holding, despite all of the changes in China, in the United States, in Taiwan, and elsewhere. Uh, that approach is still working, and it can continue to work with the proper use of diplomacy and other tools. So on that, I tend to be in the more optimistic camp. That's all we have for you today. Again, if you like what you hear, please visit our website, pm101.live. For past episodes and information about how to join us live, please also take two seconds to subscribe on whichever podcast streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Friday with Wajahat Ali of The Daily Beast. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning on behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team. Thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon. 